Chapter Four, Part Three of Royal Highness by Thomas Mann, translated by A. Cecil Curtis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espayat. The Citizens' Ball had taken place in January. Shrove Tuesday, with the court ball and the big court in the old Schloss, which wound up the social year, regulation festivities, to which Klaus Heinrich was not yet admitted, were past and over. Then came Easter, and with it the close of the school year. Klaus Heinrich's diploma examination, that edifying formality, in the course of which the question, You agree, do you not, Grand Ducal Highness? was constantly recurring on the lips of the professor, and at which the prince acquitted himself admirably in his very conspicuous position. This was not a very important phase in his life. Klaus Heinrich continued to live in the capital, but after Whitsuntide his eighteenth birthday drew near, and with it a complex of festivities which marked a serious turning point in his life, and which taxed him severely for days together. He had attained his majority, had been pronounced to be of age. For the first time again since his baptism he was the center of attention and chief actor in a great ceremony but while he had then quietly, irresponsibly, and patiently resigned himself to the formalities which surrounded and protected him, it was incumbent on him on this day, in the midst of binding prescriptions and stern regulations, hemmed in by the drapery of weighty precedent, to inspire the spectators and to please them by maintaining an attitude of dignity and good-breeding, and at the same time to appear light-hearted. It may be added that I use the word drapery not only as a figure of speech. The prince wore a crimson mantle on this occasion, a sumptuous and theatrical article of raiment, which his father and grandfather before him had worn at their coming of age, and which, notwithstanding days of airing, still smelt of camphor. The crimson mantle had originally belonged to the robes of the knights of the Grimburg Griffin, but was now nothing more than a ceremonial garb for the use of princes attaining their majority. Albrecht, the heir apparent, had never worn the family one. As his birthday fell in the winter, he always spent it in the south, in a place with a warm and dry climate, whither he was thinking of returning this autumn too, and as at the time of his eighteenth birthday his health had not permitted him to travel home, it had been decided to declare him officially of age in his absence, and to dispense with the court ceremony. As to Klaus Heinrich, there was only one opinion, especially among the representatives of the public, that the mantle suited him admirably, and he himself, notwithstanding the way in which it hampered his movements, found it a blessing, as it made it easy for him to hide his left hand. Between the canopied bed and the bellying chest of drawers in his bedroom, that was situated on the second floor looking out on the yard with the rose-bush, he made himself ready for the show, carefully and precisely, with the help of his valet, Neumann, a quiet and precise man who had been recently attached to him as a keeper of his wardrobe and personal servant. Neumann was an ex-barber, and was filled, especially in the direction of his original calling, with that passionate conscientiousness, 
that insatiable knowledge of the ideal which gives rise to the highest skill. He did not shave like any ordinary shaver. He was not content to leave stubble behind. He shaved in such a way that every shadow of a beard, every recollection of one, was removed, and without hurting the skin he managed to restore it to all its softness and smoothness. He cut Klaus Heinrich's hair exactly square above the ears, and arranged it with all the assiduity required, in his opinion, by this preparation for the prince's ceremonial appearance. He managed that the parting should come over the left eye, and run slanting back over the crown of the head, so that no tufts or wisps should stick up on it. He brushed the hair on the right side up from the forehead into a prim crest onto which no hat or helmet could make an impression. Then Klaus Heinrich, with his help, squeezed himself carefully into his uniform of lieutenant in the grenadier guards, whose high braided collar and tight fit favored a dignified bearing, put on the lemon-colored silk band and the flat gold chain of the house order, and went down to the picture gallery where the members of the family and the foreign relations of the grand ducal pair were waiting. The court was waiting in the adjoining Hall of the Knights, and it was there that Johann Albrecht himself invested his son with the crimson mantle. Herr von Bühl zu Bühl had marshalled a procession, the ceremonial procession from the Hall of the Knights to the throne room. It had cost him no little worry. The composition of the court made it difficult to contrive an impressive arrangement, and Herr von Bühl especially lamented the lack of upper-court officials, which on such occasions made itself most severely felt. The royal muse had recently been put under Herr von Bühl, and he felt himself quite up to his various functions, but he asked everybody how he could be expected to make a good impression, when the most important posts were filled simply by the master of the buckhounds, von Stieglitz, and the director of the Grand Ducal Theatre, a gouty general, while he, in his capacity as Lord Marshal, chief master of the ceremonies, and house marshal, in his embroidered clothes and brown toupee, covered with orders and with his golden pince-nez on his nose, came waddling and planting his long staff in front of him behind the cadets, who, dressed as pages, and their hair parted over the left eye, opened the procession. He pondered deeply over what came behind him. A few chamberlains, not many, for some were wanted for the end of the procession, their plumed hats under their arms, and the key on their coat-tails, followed close at his heels in silk stockings. Next came Herr von Stieglitz, and the limping theatre director in front of Klaus Heinrich, who, in his mantle between the exalted couple, and followed by his brother and sister, Albrecht and Ditlinde, formed the actual nucleus of the procession. Behind their highnesses came von Knobelsdorf, the house minister and president of council, his eye wrinkles all at work, a little knot of aides-de-camp and palace ladies came next, General Count Schmettern and Major von Plateau, a Count Trümerhauf, cousin of the keeper of the privy purse, as military aide-de-camp of the heir apparent, and the Grand Duchess's women led by the short-winded Baroness von Schulenburg-Tressen. Then followed, attended and followed by aides-de-camp, chamberlains and court ladies, Princess Catherine, 
with her red-haired progeny, Prince Lambert with his lovely wife, and the foreign relations or their representatives. Pages brought up the rear. Thus they went, at a measured pace, from the Hall of the Knights through the Gala Halls, the Hall of the Twelve Months, and the Marble Hall into the throne room. Lackeys, with red-gold aiguillettes on their brown coats, stood theatrically in couples at the open double doors. Through the broad windows the June morning sun streamed gaily and recklessly in. Klaus Heinrich looked round him as he processed between his parents through the dreary arabesques, the dilapidated decorations of the showrooms, now not favored by kindly artificial light. The bright daylight cheerfully and soberly showed up their decay. From the big lusters with their stiff-bound stems, stripped of their coverings in honor of the day, rose thick forests of flameless candles, but everywhere there were prisms missing, crystal festoons torn, so that they gave a canker-bit and toothless impression. The silk damask upholstery of the state furniture, which was arranged stiffly and monotonously around the walls, was threadbare, the gilt of the frames chipped off, big blind patches marred the surfaces of the tall candle-decked mirrors, and daylight shone through the moth-holes in the faded and discolored curtains. The gold and silver borders of the tapestry hangings had torn away in several places, and were hanging disconsolately from the walls. Even in the silver hall of the gala-rooms, where the Grand Duke was wont to receive solemn deputations, and in the center of which stood a mother-of-pearl table with stumpy silver feet, a piece of the silverwork had fallen from the ceiling, leaving a gaping patch of white plaster. But why was it that it somehow seemed as if these rooms defied the sober, mocking daylight, and proudly answered its challenge? Klaus Heinrich looked sideways at his father. The condition of the rooms did not seem to worry him. Never more than medium height, the Grand Duke had become almost small in the course of years, but he strode majestically on with head thrown back, the lemon-colored ribbon of the order over his general's uniform, which he had donned to-day, though he had no military leanings. From under his high and bald forehead and gray eyebrows, his blue eyes, with dull rings around them, were fixed with weary dignity on the distance, and from his pointed white moustaches the two deep furrows ran down his yellowish skin to his beard, imparting to his face a look of contempt. No, the bright daylight could not do any harm to the rooms. The dilapidations did not in the least impair their dignity, they rather increased it. They stood in their discomfort, their theatrical symmetry, their strange, musty playhouse or church atmosphere, cold and indifferent to the merry and sun-bathed world outside, stern background of a pompous cult at which Klaus Heinrich this day for the first time officiated. The procession passed through the pairs of lackeys, who, with an expression of relentlessness, pressed their lips together and closed their eyes into the white and gold expanse of the throne room. A wave of acts of homage, scrapings, bows, curtsies, and salutes swept through the hall as the procession passed in front of the assembled guests. There were diplomats with their wives, nobility of the court and the country, the corps of officers of the capital, the ministers, amongst whom could be descried the affected, 
confident face of the new finance minister, Dr. Krippenreuter, the knights of the great order of the Grimburg Griffin, the presidents of the Diet, dignitaries of all kinds. High up in the little box above the big looking-glass by the entrance door could be descried the press representatives peering over each other's shoulders and busily writing in their notebooks. In front of the throne baldachin, itself a torn velvet arrangement, crowned with ostrich feathers and framed with gold fillets, which would have been all the better for a touch-up, the procession divided as in a polonaise and went through carefully prescribed evolutions. The pages and chamberlains fell aside to right and left. Herr von Bühl, his face turned to the throne and his staff uplifted, stepped backwards and stood still in the middle of the hall. The grand ducal pair and their children walked up the rounded, red-carpeted steps to the capacious, gilded chairs which stood at the top. The remaining members of the house, with the foreign princes, ranged themselves on both sides of the throne. Behind them stood the suite, the maids of honor and the grooms of the chambers, and the pages stood on the steps. At a gesture from Johann Albrecht, Herr von Knobelsdorff, who had previously taken up his stand over against the throne, advanced straight to the velvet-covered table, which stood by the side of the steps, and began at once to read from various documents the official formalities. Klaus Heinrich was declared to be of age and fit, and entitled to wear the crown, should necessity require it. Every eye was turned on him at this place, and at his royal highness Albrecht, his elder brother, who stood close to him. The heir apparent was wearing the uniform of a captain in the Hussar Regiment, which was called by his name. From his silver-laced collar stretched an unmilitary width of civil stand-up collar, and on it rested his fine, shrewd, and delicate head, with its long skull and narrow temples, the straw-colored mustache on the upper lip, and the blue, lonely-looking eyes which had seen death. He looked not in the least like a cavalry officer yet so slender and unapproachably aristocratic that Klaus Heinrich, with his national cheekbones, looked almost coarse beside him. The heir apparent pursed up his lips when everybody looked at him, protruded his short, rounded underlip, and sucked it lightly against the upper one. Several of the country's orders were bestowed on the prince who had just come of age, including the Albrecht Cross and the Great Order of the Grimburg Griffin not to mention that he was confirmed in the house order whose insignia he had possessed since his tenth birthday. Afterwards came the congratulations in the form of a processional court, led by the fawning Herr von Bühl, after which the gala breakfast began in the marble hall and in the hall of the twelve months. The foreign princes were entertained for the next few days. A garden party was given in Hollerbrunn, with fireworks, and dancing for the young people of the court in the park. Festive excursions with pages in attendance were made through the sunny countryside to Montbriant, Jägerpreis, and Haderstein ruins, and the people, that inferior order of creation with the searching eyes and the high cheekbones, stood on the curb and cheered themselves and their representatives. In the capital, Klaus Heinrich's photograph hung in the windows of the art-dealers, and the courier actually published a printed likeness of him, a popular and strangely idealized representation, showing the prince in the crimson mantle. But then came yet another great day. 
Klaus Heinrich's formal entry into the army, into the regiment of the Grenadier Guards. This is what happened. The regiment to which fell the honor of having Klaus Heinrich as one of its officers was drawn up on the Albrechtsplatz in open square. Many a plume waved in the middle. The princes of the house and the generals were all present. The public, a black mass against the gay background, crowded behind the barriers. Cameras were leveled in several places at the scene of action. The Grand Duchess, with the princesses and their ladies, watched the show from the windows of the old Schloss. First of all, Klaus Heinrich, dressed as a lieutenant, reported himself formally to the Grand Duke. He advanced sternly, without the shadow of a smile, towards his father, clapped his heels together, and humbly acquainted him with his presence. The Grand Duke thanked him briefly, also without a smile, and then, in his turn, followed by his aides-de-camp, advanced in his dress uniform and plumed hat into the square. Klaus Heinrich stood before the lowered colors, an embroidered golden and half-tattered piece of silk cloth, and took the oath. The Grand Duke made a speech in detached sentences, and the sharp voice of command which he reserved for such occasions, in which he called his son, Your Grand Ducal Highness, and publicly clasped the Prince's hand. The Colonel of the Grenadier Guards, with crimson cheeks, led a cheer for the Grand Duke in which the guests, the regiment, and the public joined. A march past followed, and the whole ended with a military luncheon in the castle. This picturesque ceremony in the Albrechtsplatz was without practical significance. Its effect began and ended there. Klaus Heinrich never dreamed of going into garrison, but went the very same day with his parents and brother and sister to Hollerbrunn, to pass the summer there in the cool old French rooms on the river, between the wall-like hedges of the park, and then, in the autumn, to go up to the university. For so it was ordained in the program of his life. In the autumn he went up to the university for a year, not that of the capital, but the second one of the country, accompanied by Dr. Überbein, his tutor. The appointment of this young savant as mentor was once more attributable to an express ardent wish of the prince, and, indeed, as far as the choice of tutor and older companions was concerned, whom Klaus Heinrich was to have at his side during this year of student freedom, it was considered necessary to give a reasonable amount of consideration to his expressed wishes. Yet there was much to be said against this choice. It was unpopular or at least criticized aloud, or in whispers, in many quarters. Raoul Überbein was not loved in the capital. Due respect was paid to his medal for life-saving, and to all his feverish energy, but the man was no genial fellow-citizen, no jolly comrade, no blameless official. The most charitable saw in him an oddity with a determined and uncomfortably reckless disposition, who recognized no Sunday, no holiday, no relaxation, and did not understand being a man amongst men after work was done. This natural son of an adventuress had worked his way up from the depths of society, from an obscure and prospectless youth without means, by dint of sheer strength of will, to being first schoolteacher, then academic professor, then university lecturer, 
had lived to see his appointment, had engineered it, as many said, to the pheasantry, as teacher of a grand-ducal prince. And yet he knew no rest, no contentment, no comfortable enjoyment of life. But life, as every decent man, thinking of Dr. Überbein, truly observed, life does not consist only of profession and performance. It has its purely human claims and duties, the neglect of which is a greater sin than the display of some measure of joviality towards oneself and one's fellows in the sphere of one's work. And only that personality can be considered a harmonious one which succeeds in giving its due to each part, profession, and human feelings, life, and performance. Überbein's lack of any sense of camaraderie was bound to tell against him. He avoided all social intercourse with his colleagues, and his circle of friends was confined to the person of one man of another scientific sphere, a surgeon and children's specialist with the unsympathetic name of Samet, a very popular surgeon to boot, who shared certain characteristics with Überbein. But it was only very rarely, and then only as a sort of favor, that he turned up at the club where the teachers gathered after the day's work and worry, for a glass of beer, a rubber, or a free exchange of views on public and personal questions. But he passed his evenings, and, as his landlady reported, also a great part of the night, working at science in his study, while his complexion grew greener and greener, and his eyes showed more and more clearly signs of overstrain. The authorities had been moved, shortly after his return from the pheasantry, to promote him to headmaster. Where was he going to stop? At director? High school professor? Minister for education? Everybody agreed that his immoderate and restless energy concealed imprudence and defiance of public opinion, or rather did not conceal them. His demeanor, his loud, blustering mode of speaking, annoyed, irritated, and exasperated people. His tone towards members of the teaching profession who were older and in higher positions than himself was not what it should be. He treated everybody, from the director down to the humblest usher, in a fatherly way, and his habit of talking of himself as a man who had knocked about, of gassing about fate and duty, and thereby displaying his benevolent contempt for all those who weren't obliged to, and smoked cigars in the morning, showed conceit pure and simple. His pupils adored him. He achieved remarkable results with them, that was agreed. But on the whole the doctor had many enemies in the town, more than he ever guessed, and the misgiving that his influence on the prince might be an undesirable one was put into words in at least one portion of the daily press. Anyhow, Überbein obtained leave from the Latin school, and went first of all alone, in the capacity of billeter, on a visit to the famous student town, within whose walls Klaus Heinrich was destined to pass the year of his apprenticeship, and on his return he was received in audience by Excellency von Knobelsdorff, the minister of the Grand Ducal House, to receive his usual instructions. Their tenor was that almost the most important object of this year was to establish traditions of comradeship on the common ground of academic freedom between the prince and the student corps, especially in the interests of the dynasty. The regulation phrases, 
which Herr von Knobelsdorff rattled off almost casually, and which Dr. Überbein listened to with a silent bow, while he drew his mouth, and with it his red beard, a little to one side. Then followed Klaus Heinrich's departure with his mentor, a dog-cart and a servant or two, for the university. A glorious year, full of the charm of artistic freedom, in the public eye and in the mirror of public report, yet without technical importance of any kind. Misgivings which had been felt in some quarters that Dr. Überbein, through mistaking and misunderstanding the position, might worry the prince with excessive demands in the direction of objective science, proved unfounded. On the contrary, it was obvious that the doctor quite realized the difference between his own earnest and his pupil's exalted sphere of existence. On the other hand, whether it was the mentor's or the prince's own fault it does not matter, the freedom and the unconstrained camaraderie, like the instruction, were interpreted in a very relative and symbolical sense, so that neither the one nor the other, neither the knowledge nor the freedom, could be said to be the essence and peculiarity of the year. Its essence and peculiarity were rather, as it appeared, the year in itself, as the embodiment of custom and impressive ceremoniousness, to which Klaus Heinrich deferred, just as he had deferred to the theatrical rites on his last birthday, only not now with a purple cloak, but occasionally wearing a colored student's cap, the so-called Stürmer, in which he was portrayed in a photograph issued at once by the courier to its readers. As to his studies, his matriculation was not marked by any particular festivities, though some reference was made to the honor which Klaus Heinrich's admission bestowed on the university, and the lectures he attended began with the address, Grand Ducal Highness. He drove in his dog-cart with a groom from the pretty green-clad villa which the marshal of his father's household had leased for him in a select and not too expensive square amid the remarks and greetings of the passers-by to the lectures, and there he sat with the consciousness that the whole thing was unessential and unnecessary for his exalted calling, yet with a show of courteous attention. Charming anecdotes of the signs the prince gave of interest in the lectures went about and had their due effect. Toward the end of one course on nature study, for Klaus Heinrich attended these courses also for general information, the professor, by way of illustration, had filled a metal shell with water, and announced that the water, when frozen, would burst the shell by expansion. He promised to show the class the pieces next lecture. Now he had not kept his word on this point at the next lecture, probably out of forgetfulness. The broken shell had not been forthcoming. Klaus Heinrich had therefore inquired as to the result of the experiment— he had joined in asking questions of the professor at the end of the lecture, just like any ordinary student, and had modestly asked him, "'Has the bomb burst?' Whereupon the professor, full of embarrassment at first, had then expressed his thanks with glad surprise, and indeed emotion, for the kind interest the prince had expressed in his lectures. Klaus Heinrich was honorary member of Students' Club, only honorary because he was not allowed to fight duels, and once or twice attended their wines, his Stürmer on his head. But since his guardians were well aware that the results the influence of strong drink had on his highly strung and delicate temperament 
were absolutely irreconcilable with his exalted calling, he did not dare to drink seriously, and his comrades were obliged on this point, too, to bear his highness in mind. Their rude customs were judiciously limited to a casual one or two. The general tone was as exemplary as it used to be in the upper form at school. The songs they sang were old ones of real poetry, and the meetings were, as a whole, gala and parade nights, refined editions of the ordinary ones. The use of Christian names was the bond of union between Klaus Heinrich and his corps brothers, as the expression and basis of spontaneous comradeship. But it was generally observed that this use sounded false and artificial, however great the efforts to make it otherwise, and that the students were always falling back unintentionally into the form of address which took due notice of the Prince's Highness. Such was the effect of his presence, of his friendly, alert, and always uncompromising attitude which sometimes produced strange, even comical phenomena in the demeanour of the persons with whom the prince came into contact. One evening, at a soiree which one of his professors gave, he engaged a guest in conversation, a fat man of some age, a king's counsel by his title, who, despite his social importance, enjoyed the reputation of a great roué and a regular old sinner. The conversation, whose subject is a matter of no consequence, and indeed would be difficult to specify, lasted for a considerable time, because no opportunity of breaking it off presented itself. And suddenly, in the middle of his talk with the prince, the barrister whistled, whistled with his thick lips one of those pointless sequences of notes which one utters when one is embarrassed and wants to appear at one's ease and then tried to cover his comic breach of manners by clearing his throat and coughing. Klaus Heinrich was accustomed to experiences of that kind, and tactfully passed on. If, at any time, he wanted to make a purchase himself and went into a shop, his entrance caused a kind of panic. He would ask for what he wanted, a button, perhaps, but the girl would not understand him, would look dazed, and unable to fix her attention on the button, but obviously absorbed by something else, something outside and above her duties as a shop assistant, she would drop a few things, turn the boxes upside down in obvious helplessness, and it was all Klaus Heinrich could do to restore her composure by his friendly manner. Such, as I have said, was the effect of his attitude, and in the city it was often described as arrogance, and blameworthy contempt for fellow-creatures. Others roundly denied the arrogance, and Dr. Überbein, when the subject was broached to him at a social gathering, would put the question whether every inducement to contempt for his fellow-creatures being readily conceded, any such contempt was possible in a case like the present, of complete detachment from all activities of ordinary men. Indeed, any remark of that kind he met in his unanswerable blustering way by the assertion that the prince not only did not despise his fellow-creatures, but respected even the most worthless of them, only considered them all the more sound, serious, and good, for the way in which the poor overtaxed and overstrained man in the street earned his living by the sweat of his brow. The society of the university town had no time to reach a definite verdict on the question. 
the year of student life was over before one could turn round, and Klaus Heinrich returned, as prescribed by the program of his life, to his father's palace, there, despite his left arm, to pass a full year in serious military service. He was attached to the dragoons of the guard for six months, and directed the taking up of intervals of eight paces for lance exercises, as well as the forming of squares, as if he were a serious soldier, then changed his weapon and transferred to the grenadier guards, so as to get an insight into infantry work also. It fell to him to march to the Schloss and change the guard, an evolution which attracted large crowds. He came swiftly out of the guard-room, his star on his breast, placed himself with drawn sword on the flank of the company, and gave not quite correct orders, which, however, did not matter, as his stout soldiers executed the right movements all the same. On guest nights, too, at headquarters, he sat on the colonel's right hand, and by his presence prevented the officers from unhooking their uniform collars and playing cards after dinner. After this, being now twenty years old, he started on an educational tour, no longer in the company of Dr. Überbein, but in that of a military attendant and courier, Captain von Braunbart Schellendorf of the Guards, a fair-haired officer who was destined to be Klaus Heinrich's aide-de-camp, and to whom the tour gave an opportunity of establishing himself on a footing of intimacy and influence with him. Klaus Heinrich did not see much in his educational tour, which took him far afield, and was keenly followed by the courier. He visited the courts, introduced himself to the sovereigns, attended gala dinners with Captain von Braunbart, and on his departure received one of the country's superior orders. He took a look at such sights as Captain von Braunbart, who also received several orders, chose for him, and the courier reported from time to time that the prince had expressed his admiration of a picture, a museum, or a building to the director or curator who happened to be his cicerone. He travelled apart, protected and supported by the chivalrous precautions of Captain von Braunbart, who kept the purse, and to whose devoted zeal was due the fact that not one of Klaus Heinrich's trunks was missing at the end of the journey. A couple of words, no more, may be devoted to an interlude, which had foreseen a big city in a neighbouring kingdom, and was brought about by Captain von Braunbart with all due circumspection. The captain had a friend in this city, a bachelor nobleman and a cavalry captain, who was on terms of intimacy with a young lady member of the theatrical world, an accommodating and at the same time trustworthy young person. In pursuance of an agreement by letter between Captain von Braunbart and his friend, Klaus Heinrich was thrown in contact with the damsel at her home, suitably arranged for the purpose, and the acquaintance allowed to develop adieu. Thus an expressly foreseen item in the educational tour was conscientiously realized, without Klaus Heinrich being involved in more than a casual acquaintance. The damsel received a memento for her services, and Captain von Braunbart's friend a decoration. So the incident closed. Klaus Heinrich also visited the fair southern lands, incognito, under a romantic-sounding title. There he would sit, alone, perhaps for a quarter of an hour, 
dressed in a suit of irreproachable cut, among other foreigners, on a white restaurant terrace looking over a dark blue sea, and it might happen that somebody at another table would notice him, and try, in the manner of tourists, to engage him in conversation. What could he be, that quiet and self-possessed-looking young man? People ran over the various spheres of life, tried to fit him into the merchant, the military, the student class, but they never felt that they got it quite right. They felt his highness, but nobody guessed it. End of section 8